you know we talk a lot about having diversity in our teams and we should have diversity in them absolutely um we we need to avoid like groupthink and all of this but what we should be uncompromising on is the values the respect the kindness this is mariam pasha and welcome to chapters of my life podcast I had the pleasure to speak with Marion Pasha, director and creator of TEDx London and founder of X Equals Productions, last week. I know Marion for almost five years, and over the last years, I experienced her very patiently about giving people a stage to express themselves, but also to create a TEDx team where all team members believe in the same purpose. And to be honest, that's nowadays very, very rare. Since I joined TEDx East End core team family back in 2013 and now TEDx London, I personally never experienced such a strong bond or teamwork. And that thanks to Miriam. In this chapter of my life podcast, she chose her book title as Listening to the Unheard. And she got eight chapters. The first chapter called Immigration and Struggle, where she highlighted a little bit her problems while she moved to the UK in her early years. Second chapter is called Summer Cricket Field. That's pretty much covering everything her, about her life, young age, while growing up in the UK. Third chapter called Pain and Anger, where she highlights a few issues she had in school. Fourth chapter called Confidence and Happiness. And that's all about her life while she was living in New York. First chapter called Free Love, and that covers her life in Montreal, where she moved after New York. Chapter six is about the imposter. It's, to be precise, the imposter syndrome. So she's very open and transparent and highlighted a few issues, what she had in her past life till today, and how she coped with the imposter syndrome. Chapter seven called Broken Heart. And that's also focused a little bit more on not just on relationship issues, but also on the Brexit, which literally broke her heart. And chapter eight, you can see there's a happy end called He is Amazing. In her next chapter, she chose the title The Power of the X. And you will hear what she means by that in the podcast. So how about we just start? Let's do it. All right. I hope you enjoy it. Miriam. Hello, Danny. How are you? Good. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for having the time uh, for the podcast. Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm a bit, a bit scared, but, but very excited to see what we're going to talk about. Yes, last time we met, we were in Dubai. Yeah, and the time before that, we were in Berlin, so we've been uh, a bit of a globe trotting. Yes, the weather is completely different. The last yeah. time we met, actually, in London. <laughs> it's quite, it was, it's quite an, Cloudy today, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's been like this for a while, but hopefully the sun will come out soon. Awesome. I want to dig directly deep into a little bit about you. Let's go for it. So before I go into the chapters and the title, um, and I mentioned that before in the intro, um, who you are, um, I'm just going to quickly mention what other people say about you. Ooh. So it's going to be something bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So... When you remember Raf Chambers uh, from Social Purpose Video Producer, 
social purpose. He said, Miriam is an incredible event curator and organizer. Working with her over the last five years to deliver large complex events has been a pleasure. She's always on it with a big vision and the ability to make it happen. You make things happen, Miriam. What <laughs> have you done so far? What did you create from scratch? Tell well, me. Well, uh, that's such a lovely thing for Rav to say. Um, uh, so what have I done? I do actually like to make things happen. I think um, it's kind of maybe, it took me a while to figure it out, but I think it's probably one of my skills. Um, so what have I made happen? Um, well, I'm the curator of TEDx London. Um, director and curator of TEDx London, which I took over late last year, and before that, founder um, and curator for TEDx East End. So that's been a real point of like joy and pride over the last seven years. Um, and you know, I think over my life, I've created little projects that have come and gone. So I created a, a, a charity with my mum to help women gain skills, uh, soft skills, um, and confidence. I helped set up a group for young people working in human rights with some friends you know so I, I've done a couple of projects here and there and I've always had something on the go alongside my work and so I think about I guess the biggest change has been about two years ago setting up my own business and running that so that's been really great sounds super busy actually yeah it's, I, you know I try to stay away from the b word I try not to say busy what would you say then? Uh, what is it then? I feel my be time. Relaxed, be relaxed. <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel my time. I feel my time. I just think you know you go around and everyone just keeps saying, "I'm so busy. I'm so busy," as if it's like this badge of honor, but actually, like it can make us feel a bit sad and isolated. So I try to not say busy, just you know, happy. Happy that you're not too bored. Yeah, not too bored. <laughs> Great. So. Um, you mentioned about that you started, you know, I mean, you moved from TEDx East End to TEDx London, and yeah. we're going to dig deep a little bit later in the chapters. Cool. You had a great post on LinkedIn uh, last year talking about panel discussions and oh. six ways how to avoid chaos. Yes. And you you're mentioned about the waste of time what happens on the stage with yeah. panel discussion, you know, this blah, blah, talking, uh, talking about uh, no, no concrete topics. Is that something you want to prevent whenever you have a discussion, whenever you're also related to work-wise TEDx talks, that you actually want to get people inspired and not wasting their time in general? Is it like getting yeah. to the point? Yeah, um, I think time is like, the, I mean, I think it's the most precious thing we have you know everyone has it and yet everyone is losing it and and it and, and you know, the way you spend your time kind of determines what's important in your life so if you're an event organizer and you're basically what you're asking of people is to give up their most precious resource to come and watch participate listen to something that you've created you have a responsibility to do it well because if you waste their time it's 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 just it's really disrespectful i think and so for me I try to work really hard to make sure that in my like commercial work, but also in the work I do with TEDx, that I'm not wasting anyone's time. I realized that when we, since we worked together, mm. uh, Mia starting, I think 2013 as a volunteer, and then uh, yeah. with TEDx stand, you tried time. to to <laughs> bring all the volunteers together, all the core team members together. They're all not just busy or positively busy, uh, but they have something to do, mm. but also not to waste their time. Yep. And that also for the speakers. So everyone feels comfortable Absolutely. in that environment and no one is waiting for any advice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's just, you know, uh, 
it, it, I think you know when you go to something like you go to an event or something and you know you hear someone speak or and or you go in and everything is super disorganized and they, people are just like nothing's working everything's a mess it takes super long to figure out like what the hell you're supposed to be doing and then you sit down and then these speakers get up or oh, this panel happens and no one knows what's going on and and you just think why am I wasting my time it's, and I think as like an organizer it's like the worst thing for someone to think about your event is to say why why am I wasting my time here was there any moment in the past and uh where, where you say that was like a time wasted yeah 24 hours my yeah life. was the was yeah, there I mean, something in particular life. where you would say okay I can remember that very well that was like the the worst moment when it comes to waste of time wasting, wasting the time maybe uh, tactics related or yeah, anything I'm just work related I mean, I, I've been to plenty of events where I thought this is a total waste of time. Um, I'm quite precious with my time now, so I don't really give it very easily. But I do remember something, actually. I remember, <laughs> it's not to do with work, but <laughs> I remember I went <laughs> to a dinner. Uh, I went to a dinner, and I'll not say where, because then it will reveal who I was speaking to. You but get um, get we, we will bring it out yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh, references. It was about two or three hours of the most ignorant, like, prejudice discussion I've ever been, like, witness to. It was basically just two or three hours of me fighting for people not to be, like, racist and homophobic and transphobic and sexist. And it was... I just thought to myself, why am I doing this? Like, why am I here? So that was a real waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you were actually tr trying to bring people together uh, while fighting against the... I mean, I, I think that, like, you know, it's really trendy for some... Well, not trendy. Like, some people just love to be devil's advocate or they love to, like, you know, say, I don't believe this, but... And then they say something really ignorant or prejudiced. And I just find that... I find that really... I just have no patience for it mm. because often they're insulting a group of people who spends a lot of their time suffering and a lot of their time like trying to just survive and then just some like dude comes along and is like well what if I said you know whatever ignorant statement I just can't I just I just can't take it <laughs> <laughs> when you say you um like to have it organized or at least structured you don't want to waste other people's mm. time And I just think about your book title or book cover. Would the book cover look like someone being on a stage? Everything is nicely, neatly organized, stage design, or what would I see on your book cover? I think, or is it yeah, I think, you know, all that stuff's really important to me, but that for me is all stuff that should be invisible, if that makes sense. Like, you, you should never see organization. Organization done well is completely invisible. Okay. All you should see is well nothing actually you should feel you should feel the speakers you should feel inspired or emotional or happy or sad or moved so for me I think if I, if, if I was thinking about my book cover it would be all about the stories and the ideas that people are telling and often for me I'm really really passionate about um, giving a platform and supporting the voices that we don't often hear so I think that would be Something that visually represents that would be what my book cover would be about. So, what would I see when I when I when I go to a bookshelf and I, I see like this? What would it call? What, what would be the title? Call. When you say stories of people, 
I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it would be something about, I think it's about, um, there's this great, oh God, I'm going to be one of those people who quotes something, I don't know where it's from, so, so maybe someone can tell you later, but there's that thing about how there are not, there are no people who are voiceless, there are just people who are perpetually unheard. So you know how we always talk about, oh, these people don't have a voice. We need to give them voice. That's crap. Everyone has a voice. There's just a whole group of people in the world who we never listen to. And so I think maybe my cover or my title would be something about like listening to the unheard or hearing the stories of, you know, unusual voices. So I potentially see some a few people on the cover. Yeah, cover speaking voices. or thinking or something. Thinking, I don't know, maybe yeah. just a microphone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned about the stories of people and, you know, the voices. Um, when, you, when you have to put your book in a specific category, in a mm. book, specific bookshelf category, where would I find it? Would I find it under history? Would I find it under scientific uh, research papers would I find it under well-being uh, hmm. theater entertainment <laughs> maybe, you find, maybe you find it under biography biography yeah and uh, what I mean is like not autobiography so not yes. my biography but maybe it would be about the stories of other people okay so actually you're highlighting the stories you similar what you do actually on yeah. TEDx you are highlighting other people's life stories or what they have done so far or what they believe yeah. yeah and less putting yourself on stage yeah you know I think and this might be a bit of a tangent but I think that for a long time really before I got involved in in the TEDx community maybe I, I was young maybe I had this kind of ego vision of myself as being the person who would you know in 20 years be on the TED stage giving a talk about something that they had done I was really involved in human rights you know and technology and all this kind of stuff and it's been a real refocus for me over the last five years to understand that actually I'm not the one on the stage I'm the one that creates the stage um and that's neither better or worse it's just different yeah And I, so I guess my book would be similar. Yeah, I think I remember very well, like four years ago, I got, or five years ago when I started with Static Stand, I got very, I could connect with you immediately mm. because I'm also a person who is trying to bring other people, highlight other people, and you put yourself in the background. And I think this is very important, give other people the opportunity to express themselves, but also expose them to an audience who will listen. Yes. And this is very important because yeah. so many people have voices out there talking to people who are not listening. Yes. And this is, I think, this is the format of TEDx. You're talking, you have a, something worse to talk, but you talk to people who listen. Yes. And would appreciate that. And that's, nowadays, very important. Yes, I, do, I, I, I think so. You know, I think that... Um, I think that what's really important is to also provide a counterbalance. Like that's something that, you know, so for me, the, the reason why creating this platform or this stage, you know, is so important to me is because I feel like there, the, the, what exists out there currently, it misses a huge proportion of people that have something to say, you know, and I think that, you know, I'm very clear that my, I have a very clear point of view. I have a lot to say, but I don't need to be the one that says it. So, so that's what curation is to me. And that's what we, we put on our stage. And, you know, and that comes across even with my corporate clients. So 
I will always curate with gender balance, you know, I will always push for, to not just have disagreement for the sake of disagreement, but to actually have constructive conversation and, you know, and, and have it be, and have it be positive and forward thinking. It seems really abstract, but, you know, I, for example, I won't just put someone who is anti-immigration on a platform next to someone who's pro-immigration to see, to make it a good show. You know, for me, there's no value in that. So, yeah, I think it's about, it's about giving voice, but it's also about being, I'm, I am very clear that I have a point of view as to, yeah. to which voices I, I want to, to, to kind of uh, help uncover. Uncover, yeah. Um, when I opened the book, what do I see? Do I see table of contact? Or do, what, do I, what, what would I see? So I see uh, like copyright, don't copy what I have done so far, or pay me a license to, or do I see a thank you note to specific people? Um, I mean, I think you, you'd, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether you see a copyright. <laughs> I, think, I think everything we do with TEDx is under Creative Commons. Yeah. So I've got much more comfortable with that as a, as a kind of point of view. But, but mainly actually because it protects people yeah so like you know um i mean also not just statics also loads in general of things, but whatever yeah, we dig deeper now in, in, in chapters whatever yeah uh, so so but i think what would you see you see you see some kind of copyright notice but maybe more about protecting the work it, it could i mean when i mentioned copyright it could be for example and that we'll be going to cover later in mm. chapters is um You know, you have done, maybe you have done something in your childhood and you don't want other people to do that because yeah. this is wrong. So please don't copy it. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I will, you know what I mean? Don't yeah. make the same mistakes I did. I didn't I mean, think cover about this that later. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's come back to that then. Um, I mean, you definitely see a thank you page. You definitely, definitely see a thank you page. Um, you, I, am, I am only here doing what I'm doing because of the support and the network I have around me. You know, that's not to diminish my my skills or my effort at all, but I'm very aware of the kind of world we live in, and that is not a world where it's fair or that good things happen to good people or if you just work hard, you achieve. You know, all of those things that we're told, they're actually really rare. And so I feel like I owe, in a positive way, I owe a lot of what I have to, the, to this great group of people around me. And of course, I can, you know, Some of those people are family where, you know, I had no role in choosing them, but I've been really fortunate to have an incredible family. And some of them are, you know, are friends and, and, and partners where I've had to, you know, learn how to choose them well. So now I have a really amazing community around me. And so, yeah, there would definitely be a thank you page. It would be very long. <laughs> <laughs> Is that thank you page actually like the first chapter? Mm. It'd definitely be a preface. It'd be a preface. I think it's also important when you, you know, over time, when you, especially with TEDx or any other like organization, when you change the team every year mm. or more frequent, not uh, yeah. well, it's not this team we're staying for a couple of years altogether, that you find people where you can trust. And I think, yeah. regardless if someone is not available, etc., that you can always, you know, back up someone. Yeah, uh, that's very important. Yeah, I mean, um, I think ever since I was ever since I was even in high school, I've always worked on projects with friends um, and then university I did the same thing and so now you know it's just for me you know I I want to work with friends and I like people and I have to like you to work with you I don't know why that's seen as such a crazy thing to say but yeah. 
you know, people are like, oh, I don't have to like you to work with you. This is professional. And that's cool, like, if that's, like, your point of view. But for me, I, I do have to like you to work with you. You know, of course, I come across people I don't particularly like, and I work with them because I'm, you know, I'm professional and I can do what I do. But if I get a choice, you know, yeah, let's let's be friends. <laughs> Put the piece on, on the table. And yeah, yeah. Enjoy that piece. Um, And I want to talk, uh, talk, talk a little bit more about the chapters. Sure. Um, how many chapters will it be? Will it be like a short story book or will it be a novel with like thousand pages and 20 chapters? Or when you look back, how oh many chapters oh, would you have? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know because I really feel like I'm only halfway through the story or okay. not even. Uh, you have, I think I feel like I'm a third... I'm being optimistic now about how long I'll live, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I, I feel like I'm only a third of the way through. A third, okay. You know, so it's going to be like a book series, like. Well, I don't know. I guess, I guess, yeah. I guess maybe if you wrote series something, one, series this two, part series one, three. yeah, part one, part two, part three. But so maybe, I, and I think, yeah, I, it's very interesting to think about it this way. I don't. I do feel like there are specific chapters in my life. I can, I can, I've definitely had that feeling, you know, when you feel like a chapter is closing mm. and a new one is beginning. Um, and I think that's a really distinguishable feeling when you're like, I'm, tr I'm starting a new phase of my life. Um, but I still feel like I have many phases to go. So I have no idea how long it would mm. be. And uh, with chapters, when um, I looked back uh, months ago and I was running, wanted to write down the chapters, I realized... At that time, I also kick-started with triathlons, etc. And in triathlons, I don't yeah. know if you know, it's like these transitions from swimming to yes. cycling, and from cycling to, to running. So transition yeah. from one to another. And I see like the end or the beginning of a chapter is like a transition. Yes. There is a reason why this ends, and there is a reason why it starts. It's a transition. Um, but what happens between the transitions is, you know, something... Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's quite... Unique. I mean, I feel like sometimes those transitions are made for you and sometimes you you kind of have to take the courage to make them, especially if they're big. So, you know, I think, uh, yeah, if I think about what... Uh, yeah, if I think about the, the key moments in my life, um, I think... But I, the, the other reason I feel like I'm only partway through is because, you know, I, I'm, I'm 34, um, so I've only really had less than 20 years where I've been making my own decisions that where I've been, I've, you know, been a hundred percent, um, in charge of my life. So, um, I th yeah, I think there's a lot more to come. Okay. So a lot more to come. Where would it start for the first chapter? What where, would be the first chapter? Would it be where you were born? Yeah. In childhood? So yeah. chronological? Uh, yeah, it would be, yeah. it would be chronological. So what would it, what would be the first chapter? B, what is the content of the first chapter? You know, oh, so interesting that you ask this now because I think the first chapter for me is so much grounded in where my parents are from. Okay. And so, so my mom is Iranian, my dad is Pakistani. Um, you know, they, I was born in Iran um, and I left when I was about 18 months old. And... I have, you know, I've I've been learning more about my family history, about the con, you know, or, or the the situation and context around how we left, but also around the the pain and the heartache and the 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 struggle that everyone has faced. And I feel like as as a child of immigrants, as a child of people who were, 
you know, in a way, not forced because of war, but forced because of context out of their... Of, 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 a, of a life that was actually going to be very comfortable into a life that's not been as comfortable at all. Um, there's, I've, it's completely coloured the way I see the world. And I'm really only just starting to understand how much it has impacted me, but also um, how much of a sadness it has brought with it. and But also a... A responsibility it's just been a and maybe that sadness will transform in the next 10 20 30 years but but yeah it's it's been really so i think the first chapter would absolutely have to do with that life that we left behind and what it was and why we left and and the circumstances around it and also what various members of my family had to give up and do in order to basically give me and my cousin a better life so you talked about immigration and i remember from mm. the broken in the past yeah you heavily focus yeah. on empowering or giving the rights back to the to the immigrants and yeah. refugees in general. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because that's kind of where you come from. Yeah. And then you talked already in the first chapter, in the first like part, yeah. a couple of years, about this, that you saw yourself as an immigrant yeah. already. Um, when I look into like, when I look into what you ha have done in the years down the line mm. um, you worked for the uh, migrant right network yeah uh, but I also did a master in refugee care yeah so this is all kind of connected right absolutely so where you come from so what was your so what what is your no, I would say goal or what is your intention when it comes to you know working in this uh, in this field do you want to empower migrants do you want to help them um, being treated in the same way like everyone else or not being seen as different actually it's a great question um a long question yes yeah, many so, questions inside <laughs> so i mean I, i don't work directly in that field anymore okay. but obviously through the curation and through the topics that i work on i try to still discuss discuss it um i guess yeah I, you know it's just a classic story you know i'm an immigrant um, I'm a migrant. I've seen people in my community, like not just my community, because I don't even. What's interesting is I don't actually. I identify very much as being British and Western, even though I wasn't born here, and I don't even. I'm not even a huge part of any ethnic community in the way other people are, but despite kind of not being part of those communities, I still feel very strongly that, you know, migration, whether it is forced as a refugee or whether it is compelled because of environment or um, economics or whether it's voluntary, you know, is, is a good thing. It, you know, you don't, it is, it's not, it is, it's a good thing for everyone. It's a good thing for the people moving and it's a good thing for the countries receiving and it's a good thing for everything in between. It, You know, we've been moving as human beings for literally the whole time that we have been human beings. Um, this idea that somehow we close our borders or we shut them down or we stop these flows. I mean, uh, the, the, Danny Dorling did this inc incredible piece of research when he was at Sheffield about how essentially, if you took a look at the last hundred years of people movement all around the world, immigration laws have made no discernible impact. They may have changed where people ended up but they didn't change the need and the desire to move so all immigration does immigration laws do is make it more painful 
for people. More That's what it's bringing all about. Bringing a barrier, actually, yeah. a fence. Yeah, and making it, yeah. and making it, like it. All they do is they cause harm, you know. And and I know that there's all these arguments around terrorism and safety and all this kind of stuff. But if you look at the people moving, it's not those people that are causing harm in the society. Um, so I'm really passionate about it because I think that that we treat refugees and migrants as second-class citizens. I think we speak down to them. Mm. Um, and yet, if you look at any country in the world, the communities that have moved have made such an impact on the countries they've been in, in a positive way. So I just think, uh, and I think, yeah, I, I think, it, yeah, so that's that's why for me it's just an important, it's important because I think it makes up the fabric of who we are as human beings. We could talk about this forever, Danny, you know. Yes. <laughs> I want to uh, read out something loud, and that's related to what you just said. Uh, might be not related to the very first chapter, mm. but it might lead to the next two, three, four. How many chapters actually will be? You haven't mentioned it. Let's say part work one. Work in progress. Part one, yeah, part work one. in progress. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read something, and I don't know if you remember that. Um, uh, it's something what you wrote. I have been thinking a lot this morning why I feel so sad, angry, disillusioned. I'm going to try and express it here, but I feel very raw. You're smiling. You yeah, remember? I remember this, of course. You know what it is? This is about Brexit. Exactly. Yeah. And I remember very well when I saw this post on Facebook. Literally, it was a few hours after we supposed to meet on Skype. I was at that time in Berlin. And uh, we yes. remember we had a Skype call yes. scheduled actually on the same day. Yeah. And then in the morning... Uh, I send you a message, are we still on? And you said, yeah, yeah, we're still on. And one, give me just one, two hours a little bit later because yeah. I was awake the whole night. Yep. And then two hours later, forget it. Yeah. It's, I'm done. <laughs> and yeah. then a couple of hours later, I saw this message. Yeah. And I will never forget this message, what you wrote in there. And you wrote about, you know, being the uh, uh, immigrant, uh, migrant, mm -hmm. and you were fighting for mm -hmm. the rights for your whole life. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it seems like it was for nothing. Or yeah. it was for... Yeah, it's just thrown away Yeah, for just one, two percent. Could you maybe quickly explain what you sure. wrote, if you remember what, yeah, you, what yeah. it was and what you felt in that moment? Because when you wrote this, this came from your heart. It's literally like a whole one-page <laughs> Facebook post. And yeah. it, it, it came from your heart. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. And it was tough. I'm, you know, I'm not a natural writer. And I find that the only times I can write are when I've been heartbroken. And I was truly heartbroken on that okay. day. I, um, even my mum, you know, I'm sure she won't mind me saying, even my mum, it makes me sad thinking about it, even my mum woke up and cried. You know, mm. I woke up and I cried. My partner, who is Scottish, and but identifies as, you know, European, spent weeks just walking around just, being in this days i think it was a bereavement we, we we something died in this country on the day that brexit happened and we're never going to get it back it's gone just like you know you can't resurrect something from the dead something new might come along in the future but we have lost something very special and and as as yeah and as as a migrant who you know i cherish my british passport I cherish it. I cherish it as being part of the European Union. I cherish it as knowing how difficult life was before we had it and how much my friends who do not have that British passport, how much it has disrupted their lives. I, I cherish that passport and for the first time in my life on that day, I felt like disgusted by it. And I felt so angry 
I'm so sad. <laughs> I just, I felt like coming from, you know, coming from a, Coming from a country where elections are a sham, where, mm. where you know, where people really suffer, yeah. where people don't have freedom, to, to vote out of spite and to vote, oh, I just, I, I was so, I'm still so angry about it. And it is, I cannot believe it's been, what, two years? Has it been two years? Almost, almost. Almost two yeah. years. And I still feel shameful sh- ashamed of it sad worried about this country Ugh, you know when i um when i saw that blog post and and also the weeks after and the months after um because i was living for five years in london yeah. i saw actually the uk or london as the most i count it as the being the most open mm. to all the immigrants it's a cr- country made out of immigrants yeah. and it was the least country I expected to vote for an, uh, yeah. Brexit or for going out of the European Union. So I was really surprised. But what I, I'm most um, <coughs> not sad about is I'm more angry is that this is a decision. It's a final decision. Mm. It's not like for an election of four years, uh, you know, no, terrible no. presidency or what yeah, who knows, yeah, and then yeah. we get over, just close your eyes for four years, yeah. and then next chapter. No, it's for many, many decades, yeah. and maybe forever. Yep. Who knows, maybe 40, 50 years. But it's something which you can't roll back. And mm. this, is the, this is the hard truth where many still not realized. And I think, I, I, me personally, I still not have realized it. Yeah. I think we will never realize it until it kicks in. But I think it takes many, many years you know, to realize it, what we lost and that's in why, that moment. For me, it is really a death of something because we, as a country, those of us who voted to remain, we went through all the stages of grief. You know, we went through denial, like this is not happening. Bargaining, you know, if I only sign that petition, I'll I'll be able to reverse it. You know, anger, denial, all of these things, all the stages of grief that you go through when you when you lose uh, someone that you love we went through it i feel um as as a as a group of people who voted to remain um and we're still going through it it's interesting that you mentioned like as someone who, who we loved yeah and we lost him yeah. or her it's very similar very yeah, similar it is, like a beloved person beloved kind of you know, it's an identity it's a, it's yeah. a beloved identity because you know look i'm not a i'm not a um I'm, I feel I feel European. I identify as European. All of those things, but I'm not in love with the EU. Like the EU does some really horrible things that I absolutely disagree with. But not, I don't believe that the the way to solve those problems is by leaving. And isolation. <laughs> and or, isolation uh, yeah. and a delusion that you're somehow gonna. You know, I think that that what we're seeing here is just the dying last. You know, you know when they say like a lion dies, it like lashes out, but mm-hmm. it but it's like the last bits, and then it just dies. We're seeing that of of what British people thought of their identity as empire. You know, this is the That's end of the it. Last fight, back. you know, the last fight to say we're not going to be you know European, we're going to be British, and we're going to have our our empire, and we're going to have our you know trading partners, and people are going, yeah, and it's like delusional because not only is that never going to happen. But, you know, Europe is on the decline anyway. You know, we're seeing in the emerge or re-emergence of powers all around the world with so much more ingenuity and money, good or bad. And I think this has just been 
this will be unless we can reverse this pretty quickly like mm. unless we can somehow legislate our way out of a full hard brexit and move our maneuver ourselves into a softer position we're going to see this as the that point in the graph where a hundred years from now historians will say and that was the beginning of the end for britain yes 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 i saw in the in the last two years almost two years since the brexit i saw more and more actually also people around in my network being wanted to be more involved in politics me yeah. personally actually mm -hmm. uh way more but also um for the reason to protect what still exists yes the european union yes and regardless of all the setbacks all the trouble yeah. european union currently have yeah i see that as kind of a much needed process in order to be more stable in the future it's much needed it's like yes. a house it's shaking and you see the you know the, the gaps and whatever and then you know where to fix it and then you can stabilize it absolutely and i think this is much needed now but now it can also go into direction it can fall apart and or yes from the learnings you can make it way more stable yes. for any future i, uh, I mean i think that's the, i think that was the mistake we made you know people made is is everyone thought you know Everyone used to say, oh, I, you know, I, I don't want to be in politics. I don't get involved because I can't change anything. And no one realized that half of the, the point of politics isn't to change anything. It's to preserve the very hard-fought things that we have gotten. It's to preserve labor rights. It's to preserve human rights. It's to preserve freedom of speech. And it's to preserve these things that other people have fought for. Mm -hmm. You know, that is not about changing anything. That is actually about holding on tight to the things that other generations fought for. And in a way, what we let happen here is we let that slip through our fingers. Um, And I just feel like, the, I just, I wonder why people's memory is so short. I just wanted to mention that actually, oh, but as more time is passing by, people forget why this actually, you know, what, what, what is actually freedom of speech? What, what was the trigger of all this from yeah. the history, you know? And Absolutely. Many, like in the, in, the, in the 19th century, 20th century, you know, with all the wars. The reason why all this is... Uh, founded, established, yeah. was to prevent any war, any yeah. death. Yeah. But as more time is passing by, people would not have lived in that time, is, have not experienced that. Yeah. So as more time is passing by, it's more the risk of forgetting what, it's not just here, but what is the reason why it existed. This is why And I think Germany is going to be do, do so well, actually. Um, you know, I think Germany has really got it right at the moment yes there are loads of problems you know i'm not a i'm not yeah, a, like a awesome. i'm not a hundred percent a merkel fan however <laughs> i think when you look at foreign policy yeah. you know and we, when you look at the, the way they're positioning themselves in in the world they have not forgotten i think and you do not forget yes. if you're german right yes i mean you're, i i remember very well and part of the german when you when you grew up in germany as yes, i am i was um talking about what happened in the past, the Second World War, etc. The teachers and everyone literally forced the young people to speak very openly about it. Yep. Very openly. Everything should be discussed in order to learn from it. Yep. And not just to cover here, this is a history book, learn everything in detail. No, to learn from it to prevent similar yep. Uh, movements in the future. So from learning. But this is also very, this is for me very important. We need to talk about to learn and to learn what could be current triggers in the nowadays yeah. or might be in the future 
which might have a tendency towards similar movements. I agree. And that's this openness is so important to talk about anything like in Germany. In Germany is that. And yeah. you know, you know, Britain has has Brexit, but Europe has things that are just as scary. You know, at least at least if, if nothing else, we have firmly defeated the far right. It doesn't mean we should get complacent. But at least we are at a point where we are actively fighting back the far right here. I do not think that that is true of other European countries. I think that they have to be a lot more vigilant. Um, and I and I think that this is a this is, I mean, not to get too philosophical about it, but this is the this is the decision as a you know as a as a human race we need to make. You know, do we shut down, isolate, out of fear? Because there are a lot, there are a lot worse things coming than Brexit in the future, or do we unite and do it together? And I think that that decision is going to actually determine what kind of world we live in, um, and it's a scary one. And which world we want to live? In. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I think if you look at if you look at every point, there are points in history, right? If you look back, where the, they were key moments, where if someone had made a different decision. Mm-hmm everything would have changed and we're at one of those moments right now you know with with the rise of the kind of environmental dis- like disaster looming and the increase in automation so the increase in in pe- unemployment and and the descaling of people like you know we have we're, we're hitting into this perfect storm so we will have politicians who will take advantage of people's poverty and people's unhappiness and lack of purpose, and they will turn that towards hating each other and shutting down. What we need is is someone on the other side that mm. says, no, the only way through this is together. Uh, and I just don't know where those people are. I, I Actually, I do. No, I lie. I do know where those people are. Those people are under the age of 30. Mm-hmm. Every young person I work with gets it. Yeah. Young people, by and large, have a really bad reputation, but actually they are amazing and they are willing to clean up the mess that we have all created because they know what's at stake. Uh, and I just sometimes think we should hand a lot of this over to younger people and empower them to find solutions for the world that they're going to spend the next, you know, I don't know, almost like ne- some of them will live for another hundred years in this world. Should they not be the ones really helping shape it? That's a good, good question, actually. Yeah. And the answer is definitely yes. I you think know. so. Why not? Um, I want to talk about this uh, later a little bit more about Singularity University. Mm. I think you you know it's like uh, have you do you know? Yes, I do know it. I've got um, some um, and about the. Um, exponential technology mm. and then not knowing what are the consequences mm. and this is a very similar what happens yes. today latest technology everything looks great but what are the consequences yes. no one is looking into it yes. and this is also something which uh, is so important nowadays yes. we are always looking what is this technology can bring us to mm. us now but the consequences we're not looking yeah. you know if it's like um, uh, uh, lost of uh, Uh, job positions or whatever uh, whatever i want to move back a little bit back to the future back to the time (laughs) whatever you say that uh you talked about young people and you talked about the first chapter moving to here yeah what age were you i was just just before i turned two okay two would you say 
the second chapter start as about the first few years here? Yeah, I, I would say the ch second chapter is, is basically about life here, um, probably until I was about seven or eight. Okay, how was that compared to today? It was different, different, you know. I don't remember loads about it. I think I had a very ch happy childhood. You know, we didn't... Well, yeah, I, I have really positive memories of that time. Um, I My first memory of life, like the first thing I remember ever, is being at an Amnesty International protest with my parents. Um, and So your parents... Uh, encouraged you actually there because you mentioned also like your mom cried yeah. actually when it just yeah, came yeah. out from the Brexit. So you are yeah the same my, my love um, of politics belief. and my 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 desire to engage and my ability to speak about this stuff comes from the fact that my parents engaged with me on these topics from a very young age. You know, they talk to me, they listen to me, they helped me form my my political views and how I saw the world. It was just very important um, for me, uh, from you know, from when I was small. But yeah, I remember the first few years they were happy. I, I remember my dad was a professor at a university. Um, I would hang out in his um, office after school, and I would hang out with the other professors, and they would take me on like little fun adventures around the university. You hanged out with professors? Yeah, so yeah, my dad huge. would be, yeah, I know I am, <laughs> no, that's not even the start of it, so I would, uh, I would, my dad would be, would be teaching or something, and I would be just hanging out in his office, and someone would come along and say, I'm going to do some surveying, do you want to come and help me? And I would be like, yeah, um, uh, or like, my dad would come home from, from a day at work, and we would do long division at home because my dad was t used to t t lecture on um, chemistry and mathematics. So we'd do long division at home or I'd have chemistry sets or I remember one of the best presents I got as a child was a proper, and uh, I still have it, a proper microscope like from the lab. Nice. And my dad pricked his finger and put a few drops of blood on the slide. So that, and because, and though the reason he did it was because it, the blood is still alive for a few so, minutes. So ah, I could okay, see I the see. blood cells moving around um, in the microscope. So I have these like really great memories. Um, so you couldn't say to your dad, sorry, I, I forgot to look at it. Can yeah, you, <laughs> can no, you try again? again. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, no, I, Wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I That's... have really great memories of my childhood i'm very lucky i'm an only child and uh, yeah so happy childhood very what, happy. would that be the title of the second chapter or would it or, or yeah i think or, yeah i think so i think maybe it, it would be like what you would know, you name it? summers at the cricket ground summers of <laughs> what summers of this summers at the cricket ground my dad was an avid cricket player and so to I think to like give my mum a bit of time and peace over the weekends I would every summer I would spend ev most every weekend with my dad at his cricket matches just like hanging around in a field playing with stuff I would inevitably brush up against some kind of thing that would m make me break out in hives and I would come home just covered in like a rash at the end of the day but I loved it it was <laughs> so much fun so you got in cricket, or did oh, you, you, know, kept, you kept playing? I, I played a little bit. I wasn't a bad bowler, but actually at that time when I, I was really young, we're talking like eight, you know, I went to primary school here and uh, the boys didn't let me play cricket with them okay. because girls don't play. However, I was the only one that knew the rules, so I would umpire their I games. I need to talk to you. I remember three, four years ago back here when I was living in London, I watched a cricket match and... 
to my not surprise, I had no clue what's going yeah, on. Yeah, even the teams cheered, and apparently the ch game was over. I didn't even know who won, <laughs> and for what reason? You know, actually, <laughs> I think people make cricket out to seem really, really complicated. I think it's like a British snobby thing to do it, but actually, like my dad, you know, grew up playing cricket in the back alleys of Karachi with like, you know, a stick and a ball. Like, you know, it's not a posh game. But most of the people around the world who play it play it like the world plays football um english people just decided to make it posh i think <laughs> um but no i can totally i can totally explain it to you great eight years old yeah towards teenage age yeah why what why is, have i uh, picked that how, time what is miriam like when she's a teenager well uh well, a little rebel no actually i was not a rebel at all i didn't rebel at all i am um, the reason i picked eight actually, is because that is the year that my dad had to move to Saudi Arabia to work. Um, and, and you stayed here. And my mum and I stayed yes, here. Okay. My mum was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not moving to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's like, if I wanted to live under a repressive, repressive Islamic regime, I would live in Iran. Okay. Um, so we stayed here, and my dad, because... There were no jobs in the UK at that time. And it was also a, still a very racist country. Mm -hmm. So my dad lost his job. He wasn't able to get another one here because he was what, brown. Okay. Um, and, and because there weren't lots of jobs. So the, the only jobs that went went to the white British, ethnically white British people. Um, so he worked in Saudi for what ended up to be about four years, I believe. Um, coming back maybe once or twice, twice, twice to three times a year. So I didn't see my dad much um, during that period of time. And I think that was a really hard four years for me. Um, I don't remember much about it, but I remember I was bullied a lot. Um, in fact, I don't remember anything about that. My mum tells me that for a year, all of year, like three and four, and maybe some of five, I came home every day from school crying. Hmm. But I don't remember any of it. Um, I remember missing my dad. I remember my mom working really hard. Um, she had, I assume, little time for you as well. Yeah, I mean, she worked really hard, and I still like we still had a really great relationship. Yeah. I, we, I did with both my parents, but yeah, she, you know, I would spend some weekends at friends' houses and stuff, so I could work. And 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 I don't remember much about it, but I remember I was I was the only time in my whole childhood that I think I remember f feeling angry. At my dad not being around. Angry at yourself, angry at him, angry, or angry at the at world, and in the world that yeah. someone had taken him away. Taken him away. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, and and so so I would say that's the other chapter because it was also very hard for me. Like that was when you know that's around the time when I, I started secondary school. I went to you know I went to into year seven. I started secondary school. I had a really bad experience my first year of secondary school. Um, there were mo there were good moments, but at the, by the end of the year, essentially no one in my class was speaking to me. Wow. Um, Did you want to speak to them, actually? Yeah, or, it, it was more... You... It was stupid. I mean, it's kid stuff, isn't it? I stood up yeah. for someone. I stood up for someone in the class that was being made fun of, and 
what ended up happening was that she, everyone ended up being fine with her. Yes. But instead they turned all their anger to me. Yeah. I guess that's more fun, you know. Yeah, and that's the way kids are. Yeah. I'm still proud that I stood up for someone, but, you know, it was very, very lonely. Isn't that always the case when you stand up for something? Yeah. Actually, there's a, I don't know if that was a quote or something. Someone mentioned that if you raise your voice, you have more enemies. Yes. When you were be quiet you stay quiet yeah absolutely so it's it's actually you know it's an automatic process you raise your voice and you always have enemies yeah you should not be surprised you should expect that yeah and that should be you know that should not be the reason why you should be quiet and i think many are quiet nowadays just to not be yeah uh, visible i agree i agree you know i during that time i don't know what we'll call this chapter but this chapter is just Pain and anger. Um, during what, what, what is it? Pain and anger. Pain I think. and anger. No, during that time, I also had a really terrible experience with basically three of my closest friends who I had grown up with. So three girls who I had, yeah, you know, um, were my best friends. Um, and they ended up doing something which to this day I cannot quite believe. Um, they end up... Remember... Okay, so now we're using this all this fancy podcasting equipment. And Danny, you might be too young for this, but back in the day, you used to have tape recorders. I had tape recorder, right. of course. Of course. I had a tape recorder, I was singing to the radio, had my exactly. cassette recorder and push button, of course. Yeah, with the red thing, and you'd yeah, yeah. record radio shows, and you'd record your own voice, and you'd do all this kind of stuff, I right? I actually have a still a recording <laughs> of this. And that's Amazing. Like so, like, okay. yeah, so, you know, we used to do that, and I... One day, turned up to my friend's house, and um, and I say this, I'll tell you, I say, tell the story for a reason. I showed up at my friend's house, this best friend of mine, and she said, I have something to tell you. We made a tape about you, me and the other two girls. Do you want to listen to it? And basically, it was like an hour of them talking about how ugly, fat, and awful I am. And if you can imagine at 11 or 12, 11 maybe, this was devastating to me because I immediately lost all of my close friends and I had no one and I was going to a school uh, mm. where I only knew one person and yeah I it was it was really really hard for me at that time I remember I felt very lonely very sad um, very lost uh, I think a lot of kids do maybe then um, but it was very character building <laughs> um, I can imagine yeah, yeah. this is uh, how it usually Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, it is, it's just, you know, it, it's, there are certain things in your life, there's certain mean things that people do with you that stick with you for your whole life, and this was one of them. Okay. Um, but. How did you, how did you cope with that for the following years? I uh, left. We left. just left. That was, that was it, right? Like, that's why that's the next, the next chapter is we moved to New York. So, and I was, yes. I, just before I turned 13, like a month before I turned 13, okay. at the, the summer between year seven and eight, my mom and I, uh, and my dad, who had left his job in Saudi, we moved to New York. Um, and New York was just another world. It was almost like being transported, like into to, um, what is it, Neverland? Like it, you know, yeah. or or to the Wizard of Oz. Like it was just. Well, it was the 90s, beginning of the 90s. 90, it was the yeah. middle of the 90s. It the was middle of the right 90s. Right in the middle of the 90s. New York from the recovered from the 80s. Yeah, the, recovered from the, the 80s was on an up was on an upswing. Yeah. Um, I all of a sudden found myself, you know, having basically. N- 
it was like in my entire life up until that point the only other Iranian people I knew were my cousins and two people I was friends with at school and I all of a sudden found myself in the middle of a massive Iranian community with loads of family and loads of people in my school and incredible wealth and a a completely different world like just What was this, what's the first picture or first kind of memory? I remember landing, in, 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 in. yeah, landing in JFK yeah. in August, and it was humid. Yeah, because it doesn't right. get humid here. I mean, if you remember in the '90s, London didn't get higher than 22 degrees. There was none of this 30 business, you know. So I remember landing in in JFK, and it was humid, and it was hot, and it was loud, and it was dirty, and the airport was disgusting, and I remember seeing all of these because it was all under construction and yeah. all of these yellow cabs and just being like, oh my God, where am I? Because <laughs> all I knew about New York was what you saw in the movies, you know? The, um, uh, the, pos- the, the big tall buildings big and the wide avenues. The and the positive side of things, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and New York was a different world. It was a different world. How long did you stay in New York? Six years. Six years? No. Six. I'm lying. Five years. Five, Five years. years. So I, I, yeah. I did. I went straight into year eight. I finished middle school. I did high school, and that's that's how long I stayed. You, where were you living in Manhattan? Or no, uh, I was li- I was living in oh. Long Island, Long Island, um, in Nassau County, uh, which is just next to Queens, um, and I was living. You know, I don't know if, I don't know if you, well, in America, where you go to school is determined by where you live. Yeah. And the better, the more wealthy your area, the better the school. That's just basically how it works. So my mom and I, you know, we want, my mom wanted me to go to a good school. So we looked around and we found like some fourth cousin who was renting out their basement. And my mom and I lived in a one bedroom, uh, damp, moldy basement apartment with mice for five years um and uh I remember I I you know but I went to an amazing school like I went to one of the best schools um in New York uh did you sorry to interrupt did you see yourself like an immigrant there no because you were surrounded with such uh, Iranian community no Um, you know it was interesting because I was so British then (laughs) I had already a British accent yeah I had like (laughs) such a strong British accent and I people saw me as British so I you know and 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 the Iranian community there was bizarre you know um And so people didn't really see me as part of that because the Iranian community there, everyone was wealthy and I was not. Everyone was Jewish and my parents were atheists. All the girls had straight hair and my hair was a disaster. All the girls wore designer clothes and carried designer handbags and I just didn't even know what any of that was. So I was not considered Iranian when I was there. And um, and I say this, I say that we lived when we were poor and this and that. But you know what, I have, and, I, and like, you know, I couldn't tell any of my friends where I lived because one of them once came over and like told everyone that I lived in like a horrible place. You know, they're all the mean stories, but actually I had, a, I had an amazing, amazing time in New York. Um, I am who I am today because of that. Well, yeah, because they brought, I was, I was always that kid in the back of the class who just sat 
just hoping that no one would call on them. I had no yeah. friends. I had no self-esteem. I had no confidence. I had no self-worth. And and go to school in New York in, an, in a district where they had programs around peer leadership and mentoring. And, you know, I had teachers who believed in me and friends that I was really good friends. Um, I totally became the person I am. So it's like a 180 degree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you right. wouldn't recognize so, me. From uh, pain and anger yeah. to confidence and happiness? Yeah, or yeah. You know, not a hundred percent. I still had like I was still you know an awkward teenager, and I still didn't know how to talk to boys, and I still, you know, was geeky, and I was still fat, and I was still, and I saw that as a bad thing at the time, and I was still, you know, poor and all this kind of stuff. But I had a great time. But the inner feeling, yeah. you know. So would it say confidence and happiness, or like the uh, say, east side? I say finding, life of I say finding Neverland life. really. What second? Finding Neverland. Finding Neverland. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So you went back at the age of, and I just count correctly, um, you were there at 12, stayed 5, so 17, 18? Yeah, so just before I turned 18, yeah. um, I moved to Montreal for uh, university. Okay. So, uh, so yeah. what did you study there? I studied politics and psychology. Okay. Um, I knew I wanted to study psychology, absolutely, um, and, I, and I did a minor in politics, which then became a double major, uh, which is unimportant. But yeah, I, um, <laughs> I, uh, uh, yeah, I went, I went to, to, I went to McGill, which is in Montreal, and I. Uh, if New York was great, McGill was. New York, New York gave me gave me the foundation of who I became, okay. but Montreal made me who I am. Nice. How long did you stay? Six years. Another six years. Wow. Six years. So okay. five years in New York and six years. So there. you were quite disconnected to the UK then for twelve years. Yeah, roughly. yeah, yeah. And About t uh, eleven years. Eleven I was years. Out. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, is that is that Montreal also a separate chapter? Yeah, Montreal is a separate chapter. A complete different chapter. Yeah, okay. yeah. And that is a chapter about I would call that free love. Free love chapter. Yeah. Okay. Because Montreal exists, at least when I was there, it kind of existed in this another space and time you know it kind of has still had the vibe of the 60s but but in the modern era i, I don't know how to explain it you know okay um, you just saw it to me i should go to yeah, yeah everyone should go to montreal <laughs> um it was just an amazing place and my university was amazing and i made friends there who i will literally have for the rest of my life Um, you go in there still frequently? Or to Montreal, I don't go to or, Montreal, but all my friends are spread around and we okay. see each other all the time and we speak all the time. And I, I, I had probably six of the best years of my life there. Best years of your life? I think so. I think when people say university is the best time of your life, I really feel that. Um, yeah, so from the, from the teenage age to the adulthood. Yeah. No, actually closer to the adulthood. Yeah, much closer. Last year's or the teenage age. Yeah, yeah. last year's my being a teenager, moving into being an adult, living on my own for the first time, taking care of myself, making mistakes, picking myself back up. You know, uh, so many of like the skills I learned when I was at university, not actually studying, but doing other things on the side, like extracurricular things, are the things that I got hired for later in life. You know, I, I, yeah, I just, I can't, 
what did you when you've mentioned about new york was kind of the base yeah and uh, montreal was like the what you are today uh when you say today you yeah. know you worked in tedx as well what did you learn from there which you brought to tedx or to te your current work you know i brought so much of my values the values mm. value system okay um montreal is a progressive, open-minded city. So everything I learned about the LGBT community, everything I learned about being sex positive, everything I learned about being um, pro you know, liberal and open-minded, of course I had that foundation from my parents and stuff, but you know, to explore it on my own, Montreal gave me that ability to do that in a really amazing way. And I... I just, I found my people there, you know, up until then I had really struggled with friends. Like, yes, I had, I have like, for example, I have one amazing friend from high school who I still see. And, you know, we've been, we've now been friends for something like 20, over 20 years. But in, in Montreal, I, I finally stopped having to try so hard. And instead I was able to just make friends with people who were, you know, like, Instead of forcing things. Yeah, instead of just trying ho so hard. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's not to say it wasn't difficult. Like, my first two weeks in Montreal were miserable. Um, it's, a new, it's a new environment. It's a I new mean, environment. Yeah. I was we living off campus ever, because I didn't get student housing. Everyone in my house was older than me except one other girl who... Which is well, good. You're, yeah. And, it's, and, it's, and, it's actually positive, isn't and it? I, yes, and this is it. it is, <laughs> You know, I made it through those first two weeks, which were really hard because everyone else was in a dorm and they had their friends on their floor. And then all of a sudden I realized I had these three girls who I still am friends with who were incredible. Like, they're three of the most amazing people I met in my whole time there. And they were much more my speed anyway. Um, and so I didn't have to, like, make friends with someone because they lived, you know, like, they were on my floor or whatever. I, I got to make friends with these amazing women who who also really colored the way that I express myself and the confidence I have. I mean, everyone I interacted with at university kind of gave me a gift to become who I am now. Foundation. Yeah. From New York. Nice. From the Free Love chapter. Yes. Is the next one about the UK? Yes. Okay, it's I wanna. Up. I wanted to. <laughs> it's gonna be getting there now. Yeah, great. I wanna. Um, I wanna mention. I wanna. Wanna uh, read a title you wrote two years ago. I'm not sure if that's related to that chapter six. Mm -hmm. um, you're looking at me like, yeah, wait, what, what, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a title, um, and I think at that time I didn't. I, I, you mentioned it, but I, uh, I saw it on Facebook, but I was not. Just didn't. It didn't, you know, it passed by somehow. Yeah. Um, the title was, My name is Mariam and I'm an imposter. Yes. So it's kind of a statement. Yeah. So is that uh, something where you, you know, where you said, okay, hey, that's who I am. I'm going to talk about, or not like, oh, it sounds like that belongs to me. Yeah, I and I'm am. not like seeing it as negative. I'm actually seeing it as positive. Well, you know, oh, well. I think about oh God. How long is it now? Maybe like three or four years ago. Maybe three years ago, I started. You know, I've been now in the UK for about 
six years, um, I think. And I, you know, I had my, you know, I'd finished my master's. I was, I had started my first, first ever real job and I moved on to my second job and it was, uh, and it was starting to not go very well. And I came across something called imposter syndrome, um, which, you know, is not like a medical disorder, but it's like a way of thinking and everything clicked. My whole life all of a sudden came into perspective professionally and and personally a little bit as well um uh and it's basically imposter syndrome is just this feeling you have that somehow you're a fraud right that like somehow you fooled everyone around you into thinking that you know what you're doing and you're really smart but actually you don't have a clue and you're terrified that people are going to find out and so you do everything you can to make sure that people don't realize it Remember, you mentioned that last year in, yeah. uh, in a meeting that it's a feeling of never being perfect, yes. or you want to be per perfect. Yeah. It's, a, it's about deciding self. that yeah, real. Yeah, so people will decide like that. If I was like, people will make these like weird. I do it too. Statements in their head, like if I was really good enough, I would be perfect, or if I was really good enough, or if I was really smart, all my ideas would be unique or I'd be able to do everything on my own, or whatever this unreachable bar is that you set yourself, and then you fail because it's impossible to, to be perfect and to do everything on your own or to have all your ideas be unique. And then you think, aha, see, I was right all along. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not who others think I am. I'm a fraud. So is that pressure you put on yourself is a kind of a proof? Yeah, and also... That you can deliver what you set as a goal or no it's the pressure you put on yourself that somehow you fooled everyone into thinking that you're great uh, got it. it's this idea that like you think danny that i'm amazing and i think that i'm crap and so i do everything i can to like make to sure you me. don't find out yeah, that i'm so actually crap and that's what yeah. i really think and, and the truth is that most people who feel this way actually are amazing they they've just started to fool themselves and the reason it became so sharply It came into focus for me is when I started to read about it and find out more about it I started to think about how I talk about my own life like how I talk about everything that I have done up until now and I realized that the story was that I was telling about me was actually not about me at all I would say things like oh I I was really lucky um, I was in the right place at the right time. So you put so other circumstances, other someone people. Someone took actually, a chance on me. Okay, I on. didn't talk at all about like my own hard work or my own dreams yeah. or my own effort. And it became very evident that I was basically underplaying and dismissing everything I had achieved because I felt I didn't feel good enough. It's um, it's a common thing, I think, for many also in, in one way or another, not to recognize what you have achieved, not yes. to clap tap on yeah. your shoulders yeah. you know it's I, i think just you know when people say you have done something amazing yeah. whatever work wise some don't, don't even listen to that no. um they think oh yeah whatever you exactly don't know. exactly you may think i've i'm amazing but i know the truth yeah it's all for me it all i don't know for other people but for me it all came down everything came down to not feeling good enough I wasn't, or not feeling enough. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't thin enough. I wasn't Iranian enough. I wasn't, you know, talented enough. I wasn't, whatever it was, I wasn't enough. And it really started to impact my work and my happiness. And 
I was starting to really struggle with it. You started this website, uh, correct me if it's wrong, it's like the My Gremlins? My Gremlins. Lins, yeah. Are these the voices? Yes. Who told you this? So I call them Gremlins. Because when you when I saw this website, I, like, I remember that in the 90s, the Gremlins. Yes. There's a little beauty monsters, actually. Yeah. Very cute. Very cute. Until you uh, fed them, right? I, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is it related to that? Yeah, so basically, it's, it's, I just call them gremlins because I think that they are like, they're basically, they're my inner voice, right? They're that inner critic that every time you do something, they say, meh, that's shit. You know, I remember that, like, every time, like, I remember classically that I started my own business and, like, two years ago, and I got my first client, and I was so excited because I had been trying for a really long time and that you know that first client is so hard when you're doing your own business that you get kind of you know on your own and you bid for, you know whatever and I was so excited and it lasted about 10 minutes and then my gremlin was like one client doesn't mean anything anyone can get one client what do you think that means you think that means that you're going to be successful now whatever anyway you have to do a good job to keep this client and you're not going to do a good job anyway and like If you can imagine that voice for people through their whole life, it's exhausting. It's exhausting and it really doesn't allow you to enjoy anything. Plus it prevents you of achieving something because you already know this voice might come, isn't it? Yeah, and some people, yeah, yeah. And that's actually, for me, the scariest thing. Because I started to interview people about their experiences. And the scariest thing that I found was... Um, that people, the worst thing that happens is that people give in to the voice. Most people fight it. Most people are, are, are nervous and worried and they maybe don't take a lot of joy, but they fight it. But some people, it becomes too much and they listen to it and they just give in. And that's the saddest thing. Um, and in all the research and all the literature on imposter syndrome, you never hear about those people. And many have amazing potential but yeah. they're more listening to the inner voice exactly. so when are these i call them also gremlins yeah uh, when did they uh came or when when was that is it came it from the teenage age or is it more from the yeah. adulthood i, early I don't remember a time when they weren't there okay so more like adulthood no no i mean even or when i was a teenager i don't mm. remember any time in my life when there wasn't a negative voice in my head so when did they Maybe when I was, probably, probably when I was, you know, 10, 12, 12, 11. Yeah, and they change. You know, the gremlins that speak to me now are not the same gremlins who spoke to me 10 years ago. Obviously, I've gotten a lot better, and doing this research has made me, you know, develop a degree of, of ways of dealing with it, but... Yeah, so it was a really big... This three years ago, when I kind of started getting into this, it was a really big discovery, and it's been really amazing actually since then mm-hmm. um, it's really transformed the way i think about myself so in the in the early 20s maybe maybe the next chapter the early 20s did they impact you oh, with your yeah. work because this is the first you know yeah full-time job full-time exactly. work environment pressure you wanna yeah so please everyone do your best and then become a workaholic and you know all this yeah. what happens in the exactly mid-20s exactly so i started my first job after my master's i was about 24 25 um i was working on something i really believed in um but i was working for an awful organization with an awful boss 
Um, it's not a good combination. <laughs> uh, my colleagues were amazing. The work we were doing was amazing. The purpose was amazing. But the organization was poisoned from the top. And my boss and I did not see eye that tie. And um, because she didn't hire me. She had been on maternity leave when I was hired. I was hired by someone else. And when she came back, she just didn't like me. Um, for whatever her own reasons were. Mm. And I... I only actually realized a few years ago what happened. But essentially, I was so terrified of people thinking I wasn't doing a good job that I stopped sharing my work with anyone. I kind of, because my, I was the only one responsible for this program, I kind of siloed myself up. I, you know, I worked in this little, my, my private way with, without sharing anything with anyone. There were, I had two friends at work who I would share things with, but that was it. And I wouldn't let anyone in and and then simultaneously so at first I wouldn't let anyone in and then I would get really upset that no one was interested in my work I see okay <laughs> but I wouldn't let people in because I was scared that they would come in and criticize me and then I was feeling shit about myself because I thought no one thought what I did was valuable because no one cared but I had really created my own worst situation um so it really did impact my work that, that the, those feelings and and then I, you know and then I went to another job where I I again I you know it was Morris in human rights and I and I loved the work we were doing and I I adored the team I think it was probably one of the best teams I've worked in just absolutely amazing but I just let I let the combination of these doubts and other people's little comments really get me. So when control I your, control your daily yeah, so here. you know I have a master's in refugee care. I studied politics and psychology. I I know about immigration. You know I I I used to write about it a lot. And I went into this job and I wasn't the policy person. I wasn't the comms person. I wasn't the research person. And that's all fine because those are actually not the things I like doing. And over the years about five and a half years slowly slowly I started to have zero confidence in my ability to talk about anything to do with policy because I let this little chipping away you know it was just it became easier mm. you know I, I wouldn't write because every time I would write I, my stuff would get so heavily corrected that I just couldn't take it I would stop speaking up about things I thought we should do in our campaigns because every time I would try to say something people would just be like that's a terrible idea and so again because and people don't have to love everything you do you can still keep fighting for it but I didn't have the confidence and so I started to again silo myself off from the rest of the organization while simultaneously believing that I wasn't good as good as my colleagues but you worked uh, after all you worked in a field where you believed in Yes. Even if the environment might be not exactly. the right. But you be, you kept working. So many actually, yeah. but also many have self-confidence you know, yeah. and they end up in a job which is not related at all. Yeah. What they have studied, what they work on. Exactly. So, but that's actually different. In your case, you worked in a field where you're passionate about. Yes. And I should have been proud of that. You know, I yeah, should have exactly. been... And I look back on it now and I, and I love the work we did and I love the people I worked with and I, I realize that all of this, so much of what I um, was feeling negatively about was my own creation. I, I allowed myself to be pushed into that situation. But the other thing I realized is 
the incredible unconscious bias and sexism that is in the yeah. workplace. I'm, I'm not a woman who communicates in the way that women are expected to communicate. How would you define that? Well, how, women, how would, yeah. How I, would you define a woman which should communicate? Yeah, well, I think they should communicate however they damn please. But society has an expectation, doesn't it? That we're softer. We don't negotiate as hard. But we don't speak what, our mind yeah. as much. We, we are um, kind... You know, whatever BS the patriarchal system has said that we should do, there are many, many, many men and women in positions of power in charities and other organizations who are from a generation who still unconsciously expect women to communicate in that way. And when women don't communicate in that way, when they speak up, when they hear something that they don't think is right, when they challenge authority, when they negotiate for themselves, when they negotiate for others, when you know, when I would challenge a direction that we were going in or when I would try to stand up for myself or my colleagues or when I would say this is not right, I slowly realized that my director was losing trust in me mm -hmm. because women are not supposed to communicate that way. So when you look back to your 20s from mm. today onwards, yeah. would you actually tell yourself in the 20s in that yeah chapter six raise I, your voice more or because you also had a yeah you know this inner voice not raising would, up yeah. your voice i would just basically say keep doing what you're doing but just know that you're doing the right thing yeah. don't doubt yourself so much you know i i i to credit to credit of myself i did keep i did keep speaking up you know it didn't make my life pleasant and it was a miserable few years but i did keep speaking up i just would tell myself don't doubt yourself this is right is that the title or that yeah. chapter six i think yeah oh, well, when, I think, when we say yeah. that chapter six is around the 20s first jobs to first jobs, mid yeah. end of 20s i think it's don't doubt yourself don't absolutely doubt yourself okay yeah because i think there's like a sub chapter there that doesn't have to do with my work but it has to do with just my personal life which is about having your heart broken and i think actually in your life that's such an important thing that happens to you in the, in the late 20s yeah, or, yeah yeah so like in my late 20s just before i turned 30 totally had my heart broken um and i can talk about it now and it's fine and i think it's important to talk about because we're not robots you know we're not just these beings who wake up and study and go to work and you know do all that kind of stuff we're human beings and shit happens in our lives and it's and like and like a heartbreak is the mildest of the things the bad things that can happen to you you know mm. illness and war and poverty and you're still alive after you know, all but you're you forgetting still, this in that moment exactly but it's still something that happens and it affects people and it's okay and you know i was to the credit you know i might have a lot of issues with my old director in the way that he handled me and all these kinds of things. But to his credit, he absolutely believed that we were all human beings and we all didn't have to be superhuman. And I really appreciate him for that. So, you know, I, I basically, I, I, you know, I did all those things that you're not supposed to do. I jumped straight headfirst into a relationship. Is this the copyright part? This is the copyright part. <laughs> you know, I jumped straight right, right in to a relationship with someone who I knew was not ready to have one. And I ignored it. I ignored him telling me I'm not ready. I ignored everything. I, sh I, I put blinders on and I just, and I didn't just have the fling. I fell so much in love with this person. They defined everything. 
I decided to see the world differently. And I, I, and I was so blinded by it that it wasn't just that I wasn't listening to him saying, I'm not ready, I can't do this. But I also wouldn't hear it when he would be disrespectful, when he would do things that would hurt me. When, if I was listening to this happening to a friend of mine, I would tell them, get out immediately. I wasn't seeing it. I was so blind to it that when he left me, literally like that, like like with, with no warning, just like that, like a few days after one of my best friend's weddings, um, I yeah. fell to pieces. Like I, I, I couldn't, nothing in the world made sense anymore. And that's why I think it's an important chapter to have because it doesn't matter about the relationship. What matters is how it impacts the way you, I couldn't trust myself anymore. Like up was down and, and left was right. And I had just spent, you know, 18 months thinking that everything was wonderful. And now I'm finding out that everything was a disaster. So then what else in my life have I been so blind to? And when can I ever trust myself again? And, you know, just, yeah, it was, I had never experienced this before. That you're, point. What do you I've, say? Yeah, I've been in relationships before and they'd been, man, they'd ended and it was sad, but I never had literally my world shatter. Yes. What do you say? Will you call it emptiness? Or what, what would you call this subchapter? This subchapter, I think. Broken out I, of emptiness? No, or, I, um, I just broken. Just broken. I was just broken. Okay. I broke my spirit. Um, Not just broken heart, broken. Totally. Soul I, broken everything. I, I spent three months crying every day, every morning until lunchtime. And then I would drag myself into work. And we worked in the same building, and so I would see him a lot. And I would then sneak into the bathroom, and I would cry. And I would, I would negotiate with myself, being like, he'll, he'll realize soon that he's made a mistake, and all this kind of crap. Um, and the, the other reason I think this is a chapter in my life is because the next thing that happened profoundly has, in a positive way, changed my life. Um, which is that I met the person I'm dating now, um, who I've been with for f just over, f well, for about four and a half years. And he is, he, I think he's like, literally, if you could clone him, everyone in the world should date him, male or female. <laughs> he's literally the best person I have ever met. I think you should not let him get cloned. Yeah. <laughs> you should keep one yeah, version okay. only. <laughs> yeah, um, he's, and, 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 you know, and, and I'll say the, the other reason this is important, right, is I, I, last year someone, I was asked to speak to a group of young people and, and one of the girls in the group said, you know, what's your one piece of advice as a woman? And I, and I never thought this would be my advice because I'd heard it from other women who were older and I didn't realize it until now. The one piece of advice I have to, to women and young girls is that choose who you are with very very carefully because your partner male female non-binary whoever your partner is will as a woman will so profoundly impact you in a way that does not affect cis men you know as as, as a woman um your part because of the power dynamics in society because of the way everything is structured because of the way we've been socialized we most women not all just like not all men it's not it's not an all thing but i found that that a, a bad relationship for a woman 
can have a terrible impact on their entire life and that is less common i find for men in my people, life um yeah. listen to the ground yes they're not getting and, up anymore and in a their good relationship life. yes gives you so much that it's unbelievable a good relationship is like for me a good relationship is when your life is great you have a good life and then you meet this other person and everything is even better than you could imagine because you're still happy with your life there's nothing wrong with it mm. you're still good with yourself but then you meet this person and it's like someone has turned up the lights they've turned up the volume they've turned up the contrast everything is better but more than that that person has to be your champion so when you just said uh, the, the light yeah uh, you were already dancing but With yeah. turning on the light, you have like the right it, stage and the light system, just, everything around you. And and this person and right that I met yeah. and, and who's now with me and who I completely adore and is, is my champion in a way that I could have never been my champion for myself. And this makes me very teary. But he believes in me. Literally, just he just believes in me. He has this unwavering belief in me that I can do it anything and huge trust and 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 you know yeah. what the best thing is is it's not just blind belief or um or, or belief with nothing backing it up because he, what he adds to that incredible belief is the the work so when i started my business he sat with me and yes. helped me define it Okay. When I'm when I'm struggling with something with TEDx, he sits with me and does it. When I'm not sure about how to email a client, he sits with me. When I have a crisis of confidence, he listens to me and he hears me and he's there with me and he holds it. It's not a lots of people say, "Oh yeah, I believe in you." But there are very few people who will sit with you and cry, who will sit with you and work, who will sit with you and proofread. And, and that's why I actually think this chapter for me is so important because I've always had my mum and my mum is amazing, but there's something about having your peer, mm -hmm. you know, someone mm. who is both your romantic partner and also your partner in life to be that person. And it completely changed the trajectory of my life to meet him. Um, and, it, and, and it's just amazing. <laughs> and I just, just I just think he's amazing. It's just amazing. It's the name of that subchapter. I would say. Oh, he's just amazing. He's just amazing. He's just amazing. Um, and the last chapter, I guess yeah. it's the last chapter. Um, I wanna. And this is kind of where it started, also with the transition, you know, from yeah. that broken, being broken, yeah. to this amazing new phase. Yeah. You started TEDx. Uh, yeah. East End. Um, yeah, can you so tell me a little bit about this because it also has a title. I mean the. The theme beyond borders, borders sure. and this borders something very similar to you know yes, where you come yes. from, etc. So it came all to, together at the same yeah, time. Yeah, everything really comes together. So what's interesting is is during this broken f chapter, um, I, we had I had already started TEDx about two years before, and something very unusual happened, which was that my team became a lifeline for me mm -hmm. during that period of time. You know. There was very little that I could pull together and keep together, but the team I worked with and the project we were working on, which is TEDx East End at the time, kept me going. And that was just so important. It was a real lifeline, both psychologically and in terms of my work. So, you know, 
Uh, it's just been an incredible journey. Yeah, I remember the, the meeting where we had, and then you yeah. were relatively down. The very first, it was actually the very, right the very first beginning. meeting I ever had with you and TEDx. East it was terrible and, um, timing. Impact yeah. Hub is LinkedIn. I yeah. remember very well. Yeah. Don't pin me down to the date and time, yeah. but I remember that. that yes, was it the was, day. and it was, yeah. and I was, uh, I was in bad shape, you know, yeah. and and one of my t- colleagues on the team, you know, who had been with me for a few years, was like, okay, I'll take this, and he ran the meeting, but. From that point on, I realized that the, that the something that Danny that you've said over and over again, which I absolutely love you for, which is that TEDx East End and now TEDx London team has turned into a family, and that's really what we are. And I think when you're running such a big, high power pressured public event for free as all as volunteers, there. Yes, you have to be passionate about it, but there has to be something that ties you together as human beings. And I think it's because we're compassionate with each other mm-hmm. and we're kind. Um, and I think that started right then and there. Um, when when I needed it, the team was kind and compassionate with me. Yeah, I think that was also a reason why I actually stick to TEDx stand because, uh, as you know, I volunteer yeah. for TEDx House of Parliament for yeah. many other TEDxes. But the vibe you got yeah. there, it's not just the... It was not, work driven is also um, with who you work with yeah. and who you yeah. spend time with yeah. uh, on all the on the evenings yeah and, the, and you're, you're giving up your time again your yeah. precious precious commodity and so you know um, so the TEDx journey has been amazing because not just because we've grown in size and all that kind of stuff but because um we, you know, we've been to- we've been banging on about society beyond borders since 2011, and then when when Brexit happened, everyone else started talking about it, and so it was amazing because all of a sudden we were like, yes, everyone, this is what we've always wanted, everyone talking about this, and then um, I think I'm probably in the middle of a really big transition right now, which is that you know last summer um, I decided well. Um, I just, it, all, all, you know, the world, the universe conspired to find the right circumstance where the current license holder for TEDx, well, the last license holder for TEDx London was stepping down, and I, we were looking for a new challenge as a TEDx East End team, and so we, you know, with his blessing and Ted's blessing, we took over the TEDx London license and, you know, shut down TEDx East End, and, and I brought the whole team with me, which was what they wanted. And then we hired another, well, volunteered, but, you know, volunteers, but we hired another, oh, I don't know, 17 people, um, 20 people. And we're now, you know, we've it's been about eight months of planning, you know, behind the scenes. And we're about to have our first event in, in three weeks. And... I can truly say that the team we have is just amazing. And and now that I run my own business and so I work very independently, you know, with lots of different clients, having a team that is kind of like my home base is wonderful and what we're doing is amazing. And, you know, someone asked me the other day, like, am I proud of what I've done? And I find that to be a really difficult question to answer what you have done so far with TEDx is yeah yeah exactly like are you are you proud of yourself um and I said I said sometimes that question is asked in a negative way like you know when people are like are you proud of yourself for doing this thing and I was just like (laughs) but they meant it in a positive light and I and I think it's very difficult for me to say I'm proud of myself but if I allow myself a little bit of ego 
then I will say that I, I must be doing something right because this group of people that have gathered around this very small idea that I had seven years ago and have stuck with it is so amazing that there must be something I've done right along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really amazing feeling because it's, it's just great. About, it's, just, it's just great to know that, I don't know, it's just nice validation. It's nice to know that I had a vision and I was able to share that with other people and yeah. inspire them to have a, their own vision. Yeah, I see in you, it's also, it's not just ticking off the boxes of this is the next uh, TEDx yeah. uh, event. It's also who you bring on board. And if that new person has the same values, mm. the same values you believe or represent the maturity of the yeah. rest of the team, or can you get on very well? Yeah. Because that's actually kind of the halfway, if not even more, uh, for the, the most important part of a successful TEDx event, having a team which is like-minded strength, uh, values and like-minded. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Course. I mean, I think the thing, yes, I, you know, I've learned about how to coach speakers and yes, I've learned how to run events and stuff and all that stuff. But the thing I've learned the most is how to, to, to manage a team. And, and the thing I've realized is, you know, we talk a lot about having diversity in our teams and we should have diversity in them. Absolutely. Um, we, we need to avoid like groupthink and all of this. But what we should be uncompromising on is the values, the respect, the kindness, the, that, you know, uh, people say, you know, people, a lot of people in the team have come up to me over the last few weeks and it's actually really humbling because they've said things like, this is the best team I've ever worked at. And the thing is now I hate the pe- where I'm working because the team is <laughs> as good. And I feel bad because obviously I can't do anything about their work situation. But I think what the reason for that is that how much, how often can you say that you work in an environment where everyone is pulling in the same direction and where other people's success is your success and where if you see someone tripping you stop and you help them like it is this is not a competition and it's not about putting other people down and in fact in those very small instances where there's been someone who we've you know, let on the team and they've had that attitude they immediately realize that it's not the right way to be because they've learned you know bad behavior from past workplaces they bring it in to our team and all of a sudden they're like oh it's not like that here so whether moment it's actually a moment oh hang on a second i can work in a team but it's not that you know it's not competitive it's not about cutting other people down yeah you don't need to prove any to anyone anything no work as a team you know and actually the more you help and the more you support the more social capital you have in our team um and that doesn't mean that everyone has to be perfect all the time not at all like I struggle I have days where it's not working there are people who drive me nuts like all of those things happen but but it's in a safe space and and you know I think this is the thing that for me I'm proudest of nice very nice so what would be the title keeps asking for the title yes I like it I can it. come up with a like million it. of titles <laughs> but I want you to tell me, tell me the titles um, and then maybe, maybe look back to the last four or five years on TEDx East I think it would be the, oh, this is going to be so London. this is so cheesy um, and, and other TEDx organizers if they ever listen to this will, will get what I'm referring to but I would call this the power of the X the power of the X the X okay X4 well exactly That's that's the thing. Like, what does X stand for? It stands for a million different things. It could be millennials. Uh, yeah, it could, but it's it's the X. power of the X, Generation like the TEDx. X. Yeah, TEDx. TEDx. What does that X mean? It could mean anything, but it, it has a power, and yeah. Okay, nice. 
What's next? What are the next chapters looking What's like? Next chapters what looking is like? Uh, you talked about the upcoming TEDx London yes. event in uh, yeah. in uh, in London? Yes. So and uh, yeah. So our next we've got two events scheduled: one on the 29th of April um, and one on the first of July. Um, so those are going to be both really really exciting. Um, I am, you know, TEDx London is a whole new community for us. We've brought over some of our TEDx East End fans. We've brought over some of the team. We've brought over some of the sponsors. We've brought over some the theme, all of that kind of stuff. But we also know that we're reaching a whole new audience. And I'm just so excited to see who these people are. Maybe some of them listening right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to find out what they care about Bring and what they want to do. Sure. Um, I think the next chapters for TEDx London are all about impact. You know, what are we doing to make a difference, really? Um, and challenging ourselves to to kind of come up with an answer to that. Um, and, and personally, that's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> that was actually... I, I didn't even ask that, actually. I wanted to know, what is the next chapter personally? Personally. So where, do you, where would you... I mean, oh. usually, you know, the plans are usually never happen as a plan no you but know it's a tendency it's at least a tendency where you want to go the direction if it's like you know i want to would, yeah i think okay. that i want to have a life where i want to have an interesting life and so i want to take advantage of living in london i want to you know i want to go and see more theater i want to see more museums i want to see more people i i, I you know we get so i love working and so i can like work endlessly but i actually want to go and do things i want to keep traveling i've had the pleasure of being able to travel with my partner over the last four and a half years i know we both want to keep doing that i want to be there for all the new babies coming into my friends and family's lives um, but you know, it's interesting when I was younger, I had a really specific destination for my life. You know, when I was at university, I was studying psychology. I was going to be a clinical psychologist. That was my thing. I mm -hmm. knew it. I had the destination. And after my master's deciding not to pursue that anymore, I, I've for years been trying to figure out a destination. And then I realized a few years ago that I just needed a direction and so I have a direction but I do not know where that's going to take me what I would like is if I'm being if I'm allowing myself some you know big thinking what I would like is for for to be known as someone who finds great stories and great ideas and great unheard voices and and brings them to the wider community that's what i'd like to be known for and so i want to do that work so more uh yeah more, more curation ext extensive more... in tedx community yeah. as well and yeah. curation and yeah. bring people that's what i want but i don't know how to get there yet <laughs> <laughs> thank you we'll find the way yeah um good i'm slowly gonna wrap up great last part i want to ask you what are the references you know you had a lot of oh. references i mean i talked mentioned about references I mean, where can people find you? Oh, you, know, you talked about TEDx London. Yes. You talked about where can people uh, find me? So I, I, I'm all over social media. Um, I oh, this is actually great. So okay, let me let me let me. <laughs> I have I have some clear references. So you can find me on Instagram as Marion Pasha. You can find me on Twitter as This Is Pasha. My Facebook is 
close to people I actually have met. Um, and my LinkedIn is also mainly for people who I have actually met in some way. Um, you can find me on my website, which is marionpasha.com or mygremlins.com. And obviously on all the TEDx London real estates. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. TEDxLondon.com. TEDxLondon.com. Yeah. But where you cannot what you cannot do and i and i say this with loads of compassion is i am just one person um with not a lot of time um and what i have what you can't do is reach me on those channels to tell me that you want to speak at tedx london um i'm so like positively overwhelmed by the amount of interest i think it's amazing and it makes me really really happy but i also just don't have the capacity to respond to every single person and so you know we've got a great information section on our website and you can find it there um and we've got someone on the team her name is ashley who deals with this questions about speaking directly so i say that that's where those are my references and that's my kind of annotation that i cannot respond to messages about speaking nice um but good luck <laughs> <laughs> keep trying he won't yeah yeah keep trying up. excellent great so um thank you very much thank you Danny. i think uh, we went way over time oh what way a pleasure what a pleasure to um, be able to speak about myself long, for such long a long time, time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much um Miriam, and Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. There we go. I do hope you enjoyed Mariam's Pasha's Chapters of My Life podcast. I don't know about you, but I found it extremely inspiring. Her transparency, the insight she gave from her life, her struggles as immigrant, but also her struggles as a, uh, with her imposter syndrome and what she has built over the last three years with the TEDx community in London. You can find more information about Miriam on www.miriampasha.com and on www.mikegremlins.com or on social media at This is Pasha. Please leave some comments. Did you like this talk? Do you want to hear similar speakers? Other entrepreneurs? Other athletes? Please leave a comment. You can contact me on social media at bydanielodrick.com. I do hope you like this format, Chapters of My Life podcasts. The main goal is really to put existing life adventures and stories into a book format. I see you next time. Never give up, always look up.